Welcome to the Exponential Minds Podcast. The research, development, launch, and growth of new technologies is creating incredible momentum in the modern world. Join futurist Nicholas Badminton as he talks with the innovators and the exponential minds that are tackling some of the biggest problems and creating solutions that are propelling humanity to the next level. Welcome to the Exponential Minds podcast. My name is Nicholas Badminton and I'm a professional futurist that travels the world speaking to the brightest minds that are trying to make our lives more incredible through exponential technologies. I also collaborate with and present at conferences for some of the world's largest businesses, professional organizations, and academic institutions. This episode of the Exponential Minds podcast features an interview with our great friend, Emil Grafstra. He's a biohacking pioneer and CEO of DangerousThings.com, where he provides products to help the world be productive through implantable technology. He also implanted me back in 2014 at the From Now conference with an XNT chip that allows me to control through NFC and RFID technologies. It's a really great interview and I hope you gain some amazing insights. Enjoy. Hi, Emil. Thanks for joining the podcast today. Um, I'd like you to tell us a little bit about your history, how you got into biohacking and what inspires you to keep pushing the envelope. Oh, yeah, sure. No problem. Uh, essentially, I kind of just fell into it. Um, you know, I've always been a tinker of technology. I, I, I like taking things apart as a kid, trying to put them back together, trying to make new things. Got into software programming and, you know, building hardware with soldering iron and had a little lab out in the garage as a kid. And uh, the, the idea of body being somehow different from anything else in the world is, uh, you know, it's much more complex, obviously, and everything. But you know, I was happy to dive into a, a, a device, open it up, see how it worked, all that kind of thing. But it wasn't until around 2005, you know, I, I had been working around doctors for many years at that point. Um, I was, you know, I had many doctors as clients doing their IT and HIPAA compliance work. And um, be interacting with the medical community really kind of showed me, oh, okay, well, the body's not much different uh you know it, it's um it's a, a biological device but it's a device it's a system it pretty much takes care of itself a lot of the work that the doctors do is just helping the body do what it does so like the healing powers of medicine mostly rely on the body's innate abilities so when it came time to tackle an electronics project i was able to incorporate that and and how that worked was you know, I, I had this door uh, for my office and the door was an emergency exit door. So there was no way to leave it unlocked. It, uh, you know, go out in and out the door. But when I leave, the door closes, it just locks and there's no way to open it up for the day or anything. So I would always need to bring my keys. It was super critical that I had my keys with me all the time because if I left the office, then I had to wait two hours for maintenance to come and open the door. And so that was a problem. And, you know, my, my first thought was, well, I'll make some kind of electronics project that will like know that it's me and open up the door. So I looked at like iris scanning and fingerprint reading and all of these kind of things, but they were, you know, at the time and still today kind of clunky, uh, expensive and not well suited for outdoors sensors were, you know, you could have some kid combined, knock the sensor and like wreck the whole thing. So it just, um, it, it didn't bode well for a solution, but 
uh, I thought about the, the access cards. You know, people have these work badges or whatever, and they just tap the card on the reader, the door opens. And I said, that's what I want, but I don't want to trade the card with a key. Like, I'm the same person, so, uh, you know, when I leave my keys on the desk and I walk out, that would just be me leaving the card on the desk and walking out, and it would be this no no better off, right? So I thought about these, these chips that um, dogs and cats are getting, their RFID, why won't I get one? I mean, that just seems like a perfect solution. So I made some calls, talked to uh, some vets and things and and uh, learned a little bit more about the chips and realized, well, I didn't want to use a dog chip uh, or a pet chip because uh, multiple reasons, but mainly uh, the data protocol, the readers available, the electronics um, to, to build the project, it would all just be a little too complex. And um, the, these chips also have this coating on them that that allow uh, the, the tissue to grow into and lock those chips in place. And I wanted to be able to easily remove it later if there was a problem. And so um, I, I kind of persisted for another couple of days and found a company that made these chips, but they also made other chips with the right kind of chip inside and the right kind of data protocol and no coding. And uh, so I grilled their person and, and uh, you know their technical engineer and, and uh, got them to confirm that the chip was made with the same materials and the same factory and the same safety standards, but it's not meant for implants. And I said, well, why not? And he goes, um, you know, don't put an animal. It, do it doesn't comply with the data protocol, ISO standard for animals. And I'm like, I don't care about that. So I hung up on him. And, uh, you know, I'd already talked to doctors that were clients of mine uh, about it and said, hey, I want to put this in my hand. Uh, and they're like, yeah, yeah, sure. That's, that should be no problem. And uh, I mean, it was like, you know, two minutes of conversation with two different doctors and one doctor put it in my left hand, another different doctor put it in my right hand. And that was it. I, I didn't really think much about it. I just did it. And I'd already built the access control system and it worked great. And I was so, super happy. But how long ago was this? Simon? This was in 2005. So March, 2005 is when I put the first one in that tag has been in my left hand since then. So nearly 12 years now. I've sort of heard about various people like, you know, black hat hackers sort of doing this and using these sort of chips way back in the day as well. But like back in 2005, were you like the first person to do this? Well, that, no. So technically one of the first people to do it, I mean, the reality is we probably won't know who the first person was because the pet chips have been around for decades right. and, you know, somebody somewhere probably grabbed one and shoved it in their skin. Right. But we don't we don't know about that. So uh, the first official one was Dr. Kevin Warwick oh. out of um, UK Reading. He did the Cyborg 1.0 project in 1998. Um, he had a transponder put into his arm for about two weeks, I think, and he had these different projects he could get into his office and his lab and all this stuff. So he he, he showed what was possible in a human context. Yeah. Then in he, 2000, he was uh, he, he was like one of the the real first people to sort of be out there very publicly saying about these capabilities, right? Yes, exactly. I mean, he wasn't advocating for them, but he was exploring what's possible, right? So, and uh, that that is the important aspect of of probably the last fifteen years of of, uh, of biohacking is just people exploring what's possible. And thanks to the internet, we know about it. The reality though is in 2004, a company called Verichip got an FDA approval to have their human implantable transponder put in for medical purposes. So there's nothing uh, different about the technology or the chip itself or anything. It, it was an insecure ID only type chip. It goes in the tricep muscle. It has a paralene coating to lock it in place. Uh, meant to be a permanent implant. 
so when they got approval in 2004, I think probably then a lot of people started thinking about it. And, uh, and that weighed into my thing. I'm like, well, you know, pets have had it for decades. That's, that's a ton of animal testing, in my opinion. And, uh, and then Verichip got their approval. And they're not doing anything wildly different from the pet chips. So this is, this is a no-brainer. But I think what happened was, uh, for me, I had it done. And then I recorded a little video, sent it to my friend. He sent it to a blog. Uh, then that blog, I think that was Boing Boing, then that blog wrote about it, and then some other people wrote about it, and then Slashdot picked it up, and so it just kind of exploded from there. Uh, the, the, the difference being the timing. Internet uh, accessibility and, you know, the idea of news on the internet was blossoming, and people were uh, learning about it rather, rather easily, right? Whereas in 1998, it would have to have been, you know, something on the broadcast news network for anybody to hear about it. So we're at the stage today where you've established dangerousthings.com right? yeah. and, and you've actually built a business around this. Can you talk a little bit about that as a business and uh, some of the challenges in, in getting that running and, and sure. where you are today? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, the, the first reaction in 2005, people were uh, kind of horrified, I guess, <laughs> or it was kind of like a freak show thing. And, um, you know, got many death threats and just crazy reactions. And, uh, and then it kind of uh, subsided a bit and I did other things. I worked on different stuff and the maker revolution really started to get underway 2008, 2009. So many people were building things again, going in the garage, building hobbyist electronics, software projects, things like that. And uh, there, there was an interest in RFID and particularly implantable RFID. So I started just getting mountains of email and people um, who, you know, the internet is a crazy monster. It's hard to tell where things originate, right? So other people are doing these things, putting their videos online, and then you know, no research or anything to help others. And so people were just sourcing just whatever, industrial tags with like lead-doped glass and like impure epoxies or toxic epoxies and putting them in their hand any old way, you know, no, no real guidance uh, out there. And so... Uh, between taking a lot of my time, answering people and trying to help and seeing what was happening, I was like, no, we got to like, let's wrap a business model around this and like make sure that we, we do two things. One, make sure that the stuff that people buy from us is safe. So we confirm the, the, the materials, we do our own testing, then um, you know, we make sure that when people uh, are going to put this in, that they get it done safely. They, they follow the most safe procedure possible. And um, that quickly morphed into just simply partnering with professional body piercers, people who understand skin, needles, aseptic procedure, they're operating out of a licensed studio. So, you know, Dangerous Things was kind of a natural progression uh, once interest started picking up. And so we we started just by sourcing things that we knew, uh, you know, from, from vendors and, and doing tests and kind of identifying what was good, what wasn't. Then we crowdsourced our own design of a chip it's uh, NFC compliant as well as an RFID tag. So that, uh, that's the XNT and we put that up uh, on Indiegogo and we actually raised nearly four times the, the goal. So that was a surprise to me and it, it indicated that there is more interest here. There's people are ready as w the difference between 2005 and now is a huge difference. I mean, people are, uh, you know, even random people that, that, explain to me that they've never heard of such a thing before. It's been over a decade of media coverage in one form or another about people getting chip implants, things like that. So the, what's called the mere exposure effect is really taking, taking hold and kicking in uh, because the responses today 
are much more bland and benign. They're they're very much like, ooh, okay, well that's weird. Good for you. I I wouldn't want to do it, but you know, have at it. Yeah. Whereas in 2005, it was very much like, you're a freak. What's going on? This is the government and the devil. And you know, why would you do that to yourself? And that you know, the reactions were much more. Um, you know, kind of visceral and violent. So um, I would say probably over the last decade, the most important thing that I've done is actually just kind of expose society in general to the idea of human augmentation with these things. And it's really interesting how far and wide this goes. As I actually grew up in a very small village in the southwest of England called Martock <laughs> in Somerset. And I think last year, <laughs> there was basically a 15-year-old kid that bought one of your chips and put it in his hand himself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was, I mean, that, that's, that's, that's on the doorstep in, in the middle of nowhere in England, right? And it's kind of interesting that there's that, there's that link between you, me, you know, potentially the kid who lives down the road from my mum and dad, you know? Yeah, yeah. And his, his name is Byron, um, and we talk a lot. <laughs> yeah, so you should tell him that there's this other guy in Vancouver that grew <laughs> up in the village. It, it's so strange. But, like, with this, with this sort of growth of interest, and, you know, obviously you, you implanted me at the From Now conference, um, about three years ago and when I first met you at cyborg camp which was four years ago it was like oh you can't do that here and then we chatted and it's like, oh yeah we definitely can do that here and we'll do it on stage but like as we as we're sort of in the, in the modern world you know it's been like 12 years since since you put a chip in your hand do you think like the medical establishment is sort of seeing this kind of technology as, as being useful or ingestible or swallowable technology there's like pill cam and all these things yeah. That, that, that to me sounds like it, it almost is body hacking or, or biohacking in, in, in a way, right? I mean, do, do you think we're at a stage where the medical community is looking to like the maker community for some inspiration and sort of tr trying to move things forward a little faster? Or do you think they're still stuck in the dark ages? Well, it depends. And, and, and um, there's, there's the technology aspect and then there's the attitudes aspect and the kind of um, subculture aspect. So in reality, there's a fundamental difference, I think, between what uh, what the medical community and when I when I say medical community, I mean doctors. Doctors don't make devices, or very rarely make devices. So there's a whole separate issue of commercial companies trying to build things, not because of the good of humanity. I mean, let's be honest; their their job is to make medical devices that have uh, that solve problems in the medical community and make money. So those people, you know, they are looking to the makers and they, they, they're, you know, big companies are all over the world are having problems with innovation, right? You get so big, you get lumbering, you kind of slow down, you, you tend to go from a mode of wild innovators to let's milk this cow. And that's just human nature. I mean, they're struggling against it. They're trying to create these innovative innovation teams internally, but just there's too much internal politics in these organizations and they're just having a hard time. So I think they're, they're just watching the maker community but at, so far, they're not actively engaging the maker community. The doctors are kind of, uh, they're, they're wrestling with other issues, right? They're wrestling with the, the traditional role of medicine, which is to restore function, right? So you get a cochlear implant or a pacemaker or some kind of device or something that's going to help somebody with a deficiency come up to, quote, normal. Uh, but what we're talking about is we're not addressing any kind of quote, normal uh, deficiency, we're, we're saying we, we want to augment our capabilities. You know, we want to go further than the normal human. And that's not just enhancing existing capabilities. That's adding completely new ones, right? You know, some people are looking at like sensory expansion. 
um, you, know, you know, being able to sense magnetic fields with the implant of a magnet or whatever. And that, that does, that, that is one aspect of it. But, you know, when you're talking about, I want to be able to do cryptography in my body, right? I want to give my personal self the ability to communicate with machines over magnetic coupled interface, adding these devices there's, to, to the body and in, in such a way that they are transparent and managementless. There's a real fundamental psychological difference between doing that and simply picking up a key card or your cell phone and extending yourself through those tools that you pick up temporarily or momentarily. But they're, they're, they're tools. They're not part of you. And the act of putting this device in your body within a few weeks, it really becomes part of your set of capabilities right? As a human being, it, if you pick up a cell phone, you're like a god. You can see almost the entire history of humankind is accessible through the internet. You can reach out and communicate with your friends or thousands and thousands of people that uh, you know, you're acquainted with or whatever. I mean, it's, it's extremely powerful. But it, at no time when you're doing that, do you feel like I have this power? It's I have a cell phone and I can do this. And um, that's the difference, the psychological fundamental difference by expanding your own personal capabilities by putting these devices in. Uh, I, I like to say it's kind of like you're sitting there now, your heart is pumping, your kidneys are working hard. You're not thinking about them. They're just part of who you are and your support structure, right? They give you the ability to eat a lot of different variety of things and, and fight off infection and all of these great, awesome capabilities as a human being. But it's just taken for granted as a package that is you. And when you add these devices into that package, very quickly, your, your mind will uh, come to understand the new you, the new abilities that you and as, as an innate person will have. And that's, that's exciting. Yeah, so it's like it's like human two dot right? Is is yeah, ability, and then three dot and then four dot right, right. Well, and and it, the idea that we are no longer a versioning system, we are now this evolving uh, entity. Whereas typical evolution is generational, now we can evolve our capabilities within one lifespan. And and and, and biohacking is, is broader than just technology, like as in implantable, you know, chip technology and whatever. It it goes even to the point of using EMDR for treating PTSD and and using like the elasticity of the mind to replace sort of traumatic traumatic memory and the association, or even using psychedelics to do that as well. Right? People running down to Peru and doing ayahuasca and suddenly changing their life. I met a guy who. Uh, who did ayahuasca for 24 days straight. <laughs> wow. He, uh, he, he fixed his uh, type 2 diabetes. Wow. Now, I'm pretty sure that that's diet as well as ayahuasca. <laughs> well, sure, yeah, yeah. But it's a mental state that allows you to, to uh, make those decisions, right, and make those yeah. changes. So, I mean, you travel around the world, you go to a lot of different, different conferences. I know you, you've headed over to, into Europe and the biohacking summit and whatever. So, you know, can you talk about some of the people that, that you've met that are sort of really out there on the edges, like pushing the thinking in this area? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I definitely get to that. But I wanted to address the elasticity sure. aspect. I mean, th this is what it comes down to. The brain elasticity is very, very interesting. And I have a personal anecdote about that, which is, you know, I, I, I talked a little bit about the magnet uh, implant for sensing magnetic fields and extending your capabilities in that way. Yeah. And, you know, we just take a, a magnet that's coated with materials, bio safe, put it in a very uh, high nerve density area, like a pinky finger, pad, you know, just under the pad. That's where mine was. And 
the idea is, you know, you reach out, you feel fields, they, the fields will move and vibrate this very small magnet, which your nerves pick up that movement and communicate it to your brain. And when you first get this done, the sensation is very much like there's something moving on my finger. There's something that I, you know, you look at your finger because you're like, oh, is there a bug on it or something? There's input your brain is getting and your brain is interpreting it as there's something on the surface of my skin. I need to look at it or deal with it or itch it or whatever. Uh, but very quickly, uh, probably within the span of three weeks after getting my implant and kind of experimenting and playing around, the brain elasticity kicked in. And that particular input from that particular spot on my body, my brain was treating differently. Uh, I, I didn't notice. It was a little subtle, right? It was over time, which is the whole point. Is, is, you know, elasticity works that way. It's like learning. And uh, three weeks after, I was walking into the public library. And, you know, libraries around the world, they use these systems for making sure books don't walk out that aren't checked out. Yeah. And, uh, but they're, it's old. It's old technology, and it's very, it requires a very powerful magnetic field that you, you walk through this gate, right, uh, on your way in and out. And so I'm coming into the library. I walk through the gate, and the magnetic field vibrates that magnet in my finger. And, you know, normally a person would look at their hand because there's some weird, very strong sensation coming from that finger and they want to look at it and get what, what's going on. But my reaction, not, not my cognitive thought, but my reaction was to stop and look around. And that, that right there taught me in, that immediately within a very short time span, my brain had so changed the meaning of that input so completely that when I, I experienced this very strong impulse, my reaction was to look in the environment. What could be causing this? Right. It wasn't to look at my hand. Right. And so that, you know, I, I, I looked around of, oh, it's the gate. Right. I'm walking through the gate uh, and I went into the library. When I got home, I re it really hit me that this is a fundamental change to me as a human being. I now have the ability to sense part of the environment that nobody else can sense. And it's so integrated so completely that. I was reacting to it. A reaction is an unthought process. It's a, it's a survival skill, right? Reactions are all about quick survival decisions that you don't think about. And so the fact that I got this input, my brain had already said, this is not normal input. This is meaning something else about the environment. React to that, look around what's going on. That was just like the, that uncorked the genie from the bottle for me to say, there is something like, fundamental to humanity here that that we need to explore it's like a spidey sense right yeah yeah exactly like yeah huge spidey sense it, it, it's really interesting i mean and, and who knows to what what extent this has been sort of uh <clears throat> experimented with in, in sort of the more clandestine circles of military intelligence or, or whatever right i mean all sorts of things could have been tried out but back, i mean back to the question of like the people that are out there you know there there are people that have got magnets in their in their earlobes so that they can actually um have constant sort of headphones in their ears and you've got a number of other people that have really been uh replacing their eyes with cameras because they yeah. lost their eye and whatever i mean who are the people out there that you think in 2017 are, are sort of leading the way well, there's, it was one guy, and you already mentioned him, uh, Rich Lee, with the, um, the magnet implants in his ear. You know, that guy is, you know, for lack of a better word, he's on the cutting edge, right? He, he comes up with ideas and tests them, um, sometimes to his, to his folly, but, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's still unscathed at this point. But, you know, he, he works with ideas and things that he just wants to push that envelope. He wants to explore things 
uh, he has his he has no major focus. Like my major focus is, is around human identity and um, security and privacy and like working around that concept with the implants that we have. And and to a degree, some century expansion, magnets, things like that. Uh, Rich has tried all kinds of things. Like he he like put himself in an ice bath with some like heating elements on his arms to see if, if there, it might be one day possible to have some sort of implant in your arm that would be able to save you from hypothermia. He's try he put the magnets in his ears to, to be able to hear sound, the sound of the magnets vibrating from a coil he wears around his neck. And uh, it was quite funny. I, I took that coil. I said, Hey, I got a magnet on my finger. I want to know if I can stick my finger in my ear and hear, hear the music or whatever. And, uh, and so he put the coil on my neck and I put my finger in my ear and I could totally hear the magnet in my finger vibrating. So I was like, that's like, that's one step away from the, you know, the phone where you put your thumb in your ear and your pinky in your mouth and, you know, you come to the, the hand phone. But, uh, um, you know, he, he's done uh, a lot of different things. And right now he's working on something called the Lovetron, which is, yeah. um, you know, it's an implantable vibrator, basically. You know, he wants to be able to put this um, vibrating implant just on the pubic bone, um, just above the penis. And then uh, the idea is that he'll, it'll make the, the length of his, of his penis vibrate and, and it'll be more pleasurable for everybody. But um, the idea that, that that's even a thing is, is quite, uh, quite interesting. So he, he's definitely out there with his ideas and he tries things out and it's, uh, you know, the, the community really respects that about him people working in and we're speaking sp specifically about the quote grinder which i don't really like that term I, I would rather say we're working in bionics um you know but the community that's that's doing kind of biohacking bionics and um you know implants uh, that are um, being worked on right now include um some like gesture control stuff and you know maybe some some health data collection stuff like um, being able to monitor oxygen pulse uh you know that kind of stuff in the body with an with an implant and i think the idea here is that we're trying to go for constant data collection not just the periodic sporadic you know get a device measure your stuff because again that's you know i spoke about it before but the the issue is we have these things that we manage every day our keys our wallet and our phone and i got rid of my keys and i'm trying to work on the wallet and the, the problem with it is why people don't like to manage things. They just don't have to, they don't want to have to control these things outside of themselves all the time in order to interact with the world. But, you know, when you're talking about measuring your blood glucose or measuring, you know, your pulse and your oxygen and your breathing, all that, any kind of stuff that falls clearly into the um, realm of kind of patient compliance in, in, you know, in the medical industry, patient compliance is terrible. People yeah. don't take their medications. They don't wear their, their life-saving devices. They, you know, have a real issue with it. And so when you're looking at people that buy Fitbits, there's way more Fitbits that are bought than are actually used, right? right. They, they use them for a little bit. They don't like the, man, the, the extra effort they have to do to manage them, just keep it charged, download the data, all that. And it ends up in the drawer. And so, you know, that's, that's why I think it's critical to design these devices implantable devices to be managementless. So there's something that's transparent that goes in, it does its job. You don't think about it, but it does, you know, it works. And so, you know, thinking about all these implications for wild stuff people are doing, there, there is a design concern, of course, that if you, if you have an implant that introduces additional burden, it's not necessarily a great thing. 
But in, by and large, I think the idea here is that we can move toward an upgraded human that doesn't need all these external tools that we don't want to use or don't like using anyway. Yeah, it's like uh, I remember meeting Chris Dancy at Cyborg Camp in Portland, and this was this was like four and a half years ago, and he went on to like talk a lot about you know being being the most uh, connected man in the world, right? And yeah, yeah. External systems, and it sort of seems that today that he's 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 less reliant on those systems just because he's he's learned a lot of the information, and it's actually it's a pain. Because like, you know, keeping everything charged and keeping everything monitoring and, and whatever, you know, and there's a number of other people that, that do this as well. Yeah, and, uh, it, it's kind of interesting. I mean, do, do you think, do you think this is going to be standard? I mean, this is, this is, this is the fringe of society that really sort of gets into this. So I think so Grindhouse Wetware and, and Rich Lee, um, yourself, myself, and a number of other people, this isn't normal. This isn't bang smack in the middle of the bell curve. This is right on the edges. Do you think that in, in sort of 10 years time, this is going to be a lot more normal to think about? Well, it's already more normal to think about, to actually do, maybe, maybe not. But um, I mean, in the last 10 years, we've seen a huge change in public attitude. And even in the last few years of running dangerous things, the customer base has changed completely. The initial customer was, you know, where's the data sheet and do you have a circuit diagram? And now the customer is, oh, that's cool. What can I do with it? Like, tell me about the technology. Like, they have no idea. It's just a, you know, it's on, almost on par with getting another piercing or a tattoo or maybe I'll get an implant, do some cool things. So, you know, society is rapidly changing their thought processes around human augmentation, implants that are non-medical in nature. I mean, nobody would question, uh, you know, uh, you need a pacemaker, let's do it. But that is a huge, you know, they rip your chest open, stick a thing in there, and they're going to come back for it in 10 years and replace it. But you don't question it because it's medically necessary. And yeah, you know, you can take me to the brink of death and bring me back. That's fine because it's, it's what I need to do. But for, for this concept, like, hey, let's, let's push the envelope a bit. Let's augment our capabilities. It really bends some minds to, to think in those terms. But it is changing. It's changing rapidly. The, the reality is I think that the major changes we're going to see to humanity as a species uh, in, the, in the near future even are going to be genetic. Because these are things, you know, anything you're going to put into a human being to maybe, you know, give them the power of cryptography or to talk to machines over Wi-Fi or anything like that, that, that is an intrusive process. You, you can't grow that in the womb, right? I mean, unless genetic, genetics you know, goes absolutely crazy. I mean, I could imagine a time a thousand years from now, maybe, or maybe even a couple hundred years from now, where genetics have advanced to the point where you know, we find organisms in the wild that build shells around themselves in the ocean but those shells are made with calcium and there's ion channels that could be used as circuitry and we could somehow genetically program ourselves to grow circuitry in our body i don't i don't think it's impossible i just think it's far 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 out and um you know so until then the idea of implanting devices and machines in our bodies will probably be part of the new human birthing experience you know we're we could even explore ideas or concepts like, you know, um, nano enhancements to blood performance. You know, a lot of people are like, well, nano, nano machines are, are going to be, you know, acting as your immune system. And sure, that's nice to think about. But the reality is it's a bit far off because there needs to be intelligence and control, command and control and security issues and all kinds of things that 
the leap from the idea to the reality is quite far, right? But the leap right now to saying, well, let's give a baby some genetic enhancements, not just fixing a heart defect, but enhancements that are good for the environment that the baby is in. Different. If, you, if you're talking about babies in Ethiopia where resources are scarce, those genetic enhancements will be different from babies that live in areas of the world that have a ton of calories and who need um, strength will be a virtue rather than, uh, rather than being able to conserve energy. So you know, space travel, the idea of saying, these babies are gonna be made into astronauts in the future that are gonna have to go to Mars or beyond and we, they need to have different capabilities that are more suited for space than they are here domestically. And we could even have a future where you could change those genetics on the fly later in life. Um, you say, oh, you know, I trained my whole life to be an astronaut, now I'm gonna go, I get the genetic mod injected, now I'm ready. But you know, the idea of saying, just today, saying we, we can enhance the blood's oxygen carrying performance by putting these nanomolecules in the blood in the last five years or whatever. That's, that's very, very close. You know, the molecules are already being designed and worked on for saving patients' lives, but the, enhan the enhancement, the, the hacking aspect of being able to use those molecules to just enhance performance. I mean, obviously sports could be the first venue where these are, are, are tried, but deep dive, you know, skin divers, people that are needing to enhance performance or go up Mount Everest without oxygen, all these kinds of capability, human capabilities, to the idea of enhancing your body so you don't need external tools or you can survive in the environment that you're going to be in better or longer or more effectively. I mean, these are going to be, we're going to start seeing these things happen very soon, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's like CRISPR-Cas9 has been around for, you know, decades and now it's suddenly being used for like treatments um, and, you know, testing it on animals and it's kind of interesting and you're, you're creating hybridized animals and chimeras like pigs that have got human DNA so they can actually grow organs that could be potentially transplanted into humans, right? It's it's like fixing a lot of the problems in the world. It's like people are living longer. <laughs> There's yeah. fewer people that, that can provide you with these organs that can replace the ones that are failing in the bodies. And, you know, there's 3D printed tissue. There's, there's all of these. It's an incredibly exciting world. Um, Amor, I wanted to say thank you so much for this discussion. Um, I think we could talk for about 10 hours on this. Yeah, probably. <laughs> so I'm pretty sure that we're going to have a chat again. But I'd just like to say uh, thank you very much. And good luck with Dangerous Things. Pushing the envelope, and uh, I look forward to seeing you soon. Sounds good. Thanks. Bye.